Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Carl Fabricius. Welcome back, Carl. Hey, Jason. Good to be here. It's good to chat with you again. Um, so our topic for the day is we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's all about David's census. And we had previously discussed this, uh, not you and I, but on the podcast, uh, David Ramirez came on to discuss the role of plague. Uh, and this was in light of what was going on uh, early on in the pandemic and and how often plague is a sign of God's displeasure and a, and a call to repentance. Um, uh, but today, we're going to get your take. Uh, and we all know that um, when we hear from you, especially in the interpretation of the Old Testament, we see the Old Testament kind of unfold with uh, new insight, and we see things through new eyes. And and so I'm really excited to, to hear your take on Second Samuel 24 and David's census. So where do we begin? What uh, Where should we start in looking at how um, this text and, and the person of David and what's going on with this census, how that unfolds to a better understanding of who our Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done? Well, I, I think it kind of has to go back and say, how does this whole First and Second Samuel thing begin and end? You've got the initial, of course, you've got prayer involved, and it's the prayer of Hannah, and God hears the prayer. And you'll notice that right away, if you jump to the very last verse, this particular section closes with the Lord heeded the prayers for the land. Mm-hmm. God is always listening to his people. You get the birth of Samuel, the narrative there that parallels, of course, what goes on in terms of Luke chapter 1 and 2. And then mm-hmm. you get this intriguing final scene in Second Samuel, where he is standing between the plague and you know, this whole moment when the Lord hears and spares. So it's, you get a Christological sense that this is connected to the whole narrative of Christ's birth and his death and wants to point us to the true king. Because after all, you've got the search for the king, so to speak. First, with Samuel, they reject Samuel and say, we want a king just like everybody else, which leads to Saul and all the those activities that go on. Then David, who's chosen because we have that intriguing chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, chosen because of his heart. And the heart comes up again in this final scene of David's life. Now, we actually kind of have to go back and remind ourselves that the last words of David have occurred in chapter 23, and which you get this confession that follows really Psalm 18 being inserted, and then David having this final cry where he says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And you've seen that all along with David and his Psalms, playing them for um, Saul and calming his heart. You've got all these activities along the way. And here, 
are these words that are quote unquote his last words. The text even says so. But then you play out this last scene first with the mighty men. That's fascinating in itself. You know, I think lots of times people skip over the list of things, but we really shouldn't because you've got 37 men involved among the mighty men. And the very mm-hmm. first one named, this Joseph Beshevith, is a fascinating one because that name can be translated that he dwells in the Sabbath rest, which I find, you know, I'm always into this name thing, even though you can't prove anything, I know. <laughs> Don't stone me. <laughs> it's still fascinating to think that the first one named in this very significant one is there and he's the one who kills 800 men eight the number of new creation times 100 this idea of this rest the you know the sabbath rest being in there and being the one who is chief among all the captains named at the very beginning and then you have the second one whose name is Eliezer and you can't help but it's a sound sounds like it's not the exact same name I'll point that out again, but it sounds like that servant of Abraham sort of tying you into the promise. You want to think in terms of the the Old Testament promises, the way of rest, and then the the way of the real heir, not Eliezer of Damascus, but rather that it would eventually bring out Isaac. And then comes Shema, the son of Egi the Herorite, and Shema is not the same smell, spelling as the great Shema, of course, of Israel. But again, one of these things that hinges on being a sound alike, so that it sort of makes you think of the God of Israel who is faithful, who is merciful, who sustained his people, who hears his people's prayers all the time. And particularly that he's brought about these mighty men and the Philistines. And of course, the giants have been driven out of the land as well. The giants have now perished. But then comes that, after hearing about those three guys, and they're the Lord bringing great victory through the last two in particular, you hear a little story that I think everybody should pay attention to. Because David is in the stronghold, and he's in the cave of Adullam. It takes you back to that event. The Philistines are in the valley of Rephaim. And here's David something we don't hear at the moment it happens, but we hear right after his last words, David says, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Well, we've heard nothing about the well of Bethlehem. What's this about? Why does this come up? And you can't help but think in terms, he's longing for the promise to be fulfilled, longing for the waters that come, because water all along through the Old Testament and the wells, I mean, the wells that were there when you had Isaac finding Rebekah, or you have these other events uh, with Jacob and the well. And so you have all these wells coming along, and here's he's longing for the well of Bethlehem, a figure of what is to come, the wells that are going to break forth in the days of Christ's birth. So it's almost like, I don't know if I'd call it this specifically, but sort of a birth uh, prophecy in a certain sense, that he's longing for this. Well, these three guys that are named here go and they break through, go right through the camp of the Philistines to get that water for David. You know, these mighty men of his break through, get him the water. Ah, 
but then he won't drink it. He refuses to drink it because he says, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? In other words, he sees he's forced men into battle when he should not have. He sent them to try to bring about something, and he should not have. And this is going to sort of point us forward to what he must do in the end to say, hey, this is my sin. Even as he had to learn to say that it was his sin with regard to the uh, act with Bathsheba. Yes, the wife of Uriah, who all of a sudden we're confronted with because at the very end of the mighty men, guess who shows up? Uriah the Hittite. So you've got this, this whole list of guys and Uriah is at the end, just as a reminder again. I mean, he could have thrown Uriah anywhere in the list, right? But it's right there at the end of the list to remind us of what happened earlier. And here was David, the great king of Israel, the one whose heart God had approved, and yet the one who was over a year in unrepentance. And here is the one who is going to be involved in this substitutionary activity at the end of the chapter. So it's all that lead in, and suddenly we hear the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Now, that is a familiar thing in terms of First and Second Samuel. It happens several mm -hmm. occasions, but um, it's important here to know what happens in the Chronicles, because in First Chronicles in this account, we find that Satan stood up against Israel. Now, this right. to me is this connection with the Job, uh, you know, where Job is there and Satan comes and stands in the midst of the heaven, and you know, we've got that whole. Thing. Have you considered my servant? And once again, David is going to be confronted. Uh, Satan has crept in in Israel, and indeed he's there all the time. And even David, who has this mighty men around him, who's been given these victories by the Lord, as it said at the beginning of the narrative, who confesses when he recites Psalm 18 and then has his last words, that the God of Israel is the only one who can do this and who has declared his house to be the house in which the covenant is. And yet David is still struggling. You know, it's much like the words of Paul. I do what I do not want to do. And so David decides to number the people. Now, that numbering takes you back all the way to Genesis 13, that verb shows up. Because there you have God saying to Abraham in that scene where Lot and here, you know, the property is going to be divided. And Lot, of course, decides to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet God takes Abraham up and tells him to lift up his eyes and see the whole land. And so this numbering that goes on then is tied to there because God says, it's not even possible to number those who will be the descendants of Abraham. Only on two occasions did God instruct the people to be numbered. And the, the word is kind of interesting because it has to do with the idea of lifting up the heads. It's a, kind of a figure of speech. It's not, and that lift up is most famous for verses like, lift up your heads, ye mighty gates, or lift up your eyes and see these different locations that 
you know, just think of it in terms of doing a census. Well, the two times are numbers. The beginning of the book of Numbers and the end. In the beginning, you get the numbering of the people. Why did God do the second numbering? Do you remember? I, I don't remember. It was because we had that whole thing of all of them are going to perish over the age of 20. So uh. when they count them the second time, this verifies exactly what God said would happen, that those who had been unfaithful would perish in the wilderness, everyone over the age of 20, and that's why you get a second numbering. It has to do with God establishing his word to be true. David is establishing more the question of the power and might of his kingdom. It's mm. about David, which, yeah. of course, all of us like to do. You know, this is what people like to do with numbering your congregation. You know, mm. your numbers go down, you're a bad pastor. Your numbers go up, you must be a great guy. <laughs> Doing the Lord's work out there. Well, mm -hmm. it's always about the question of, really, what does God do? So God gives, God takes away, God strengthens, God weakens, and yet all behind it is always the Lord carrying out what he needs to carry out. So the anger of the Lord is aroused against Israel, and it's aroused because David is busy thinking about himself and his mighty men and all their accomplishments, and kind of forgets the fact that the real thing is the Lord has given great victories. And in fact, the Lord has driven the giants from the land and all these other things. So the, you know, Joab becomes the guy trying to correct him. Mm -hmm. now, that's the other thing. You know who isn't in the list of the mighty men? There's no Joab. <laughs> right. Joab's armor bearer is there, but no Joab. That is just kind of fascinating to me. Because we know Joab's kind of a sneaky, kind of a snake-like character. <laughs> he just kind of shows up, and yet here he is giving the good advice and reminding him, you know, even though he totally ignores David's words about the, you know, Absalom, because he kills Absalom, makes sure he's dead in the tree, yet it is here that he's giving good advice. You sure we, you want to count these people? Shouldn't you? Just be content with what you have, and certainly we want your power to extend, but you shouldn't really do this. In fact, so sneaky is Joab about this, and so angry that we find out he didn't even finish the census. <laughs> it gives you this number here, but he never finished it because he didn't think it was something that needed to be done. And uh, yet here's David insisting that it be done. And uh, so they... They go and they number all these people. It's nine months and 20 days, you know, almost like the length of a, well, I shouldn't say that, but it kind of reminds me of a birth or something that you've got this going on. And it's not quite as long as the time that David was unrepentant. So that's good because you'll get this, uh, you know, the end of things comes quicker. And yet, you find out there's, you know, 1,300,000 uh, warriors that are there. And yet suddenly, verse 10 comes. David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. That heart of David, which is what the Lord sees, but we don't see. The heart of David, which was so important in his choosing, 
the heart of David that turned and repented in the days of Bathsheba, the heart of David that is there in mercy toward Jonathan, the heart of David that is there in mercy to the Lord's anointed and does not you know, kill Saul when he has the opportunity, but rather says, that's the Lord's anointed. That heart of David is there still. And you have him, the translation here says condemned. It's really that his heart was smitten. It's, that word can be used for with the sword, that you can be smitten, that you can be smote. And uh, so that it's kind of a, yeah. I think that's a better word than condemned. The idea of a battle has gone on. And his heart now is wounded because he knows how wrong this was, that he trusted in this. And so he cries out, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I take away the iniquity of your servant. It, it, he's so wounded that you get that sense of the Psalms, you know, those Psalms that are penitential, the crying out from the depths and knowing that this is a great, and some would say, it's only a census, David, get over it. <laughs> and yet this is a great burden to his heart. So you take the the, the chronicler uh, and his account of this as he was he was tempted by Satan to do this um, against the Lord, uh, even though in Second Samuel twenty four it says that the Lord incited David against them. Yeah, I I think that the temptation is there that the Lord allows Satan to have a little bit more reign shall we say, just like mm-hmm. he did with Job. And I think that's how you reconcile the two texts together. Mm-hmm. I can't so be this wrong was, about that. Yeah, so in, in other words, this was uh, uh, like unto the temptation of our Lord in the wilderness, when the Spirit led him out to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Uh, it was an opportunity yes. to demonstrate where David's heart was. Yes, well, the same thing happens to us. I mean, we're let mm-hmm. out from the font into the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, the temptation, you know, what is it Paul says? It's temptation will surely come. <laughs> right. It's not that it's going to, that you're going to be immune. It's that it mm-hmm. surely comes to you. And so David's okay. coming to the end of his life. He's considering these things. It's kind of the, look. people like to look back on their life, don't they? And mm-hmm. say, you know, look what I accomplished. Look what's happened here. Look mm-hmm. how we've become greater. So is there a sense then, too, that Dave would, was also in uh, angry at the people of Israel and, um, and uh, in, in, in the wrong way? Uh, kind of like, you know how it is as pastors, sometimes you get angry at the people because they're just, they seem in, inert or they're not as excited about things as perhaps you are, and you end up becoming condemned by your own heart's desires to, to, to see them um, flourish in the, kind of the fullness of the Lord's teaching, and yet uh, you yourself are holding back from leading them uh, into flir- that kind of flourishing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, not that I would ever have had any of that in my heart, <laughs> but it, you know, it is so much like our human flesh. We're looking at, doesn't anybody listen to me? 
Haven't they heard what I've been teaching them? Don't they see yeah. it right before their very eyes? There is sort of that, I don't know if I'd use the term anger. We just get grumpy, and I'm good about yeah. being grumpy. And yeah. uh, we you think, come on, you guys should know better. And I think that's another one of those end-of-life things. I mean, we're going to hear after all this, you'll go into the first kings, and you hear right away King David was old. Mm-hmm. And they put covers on him. We know how we get when we get old. We've visited shut-ins, and I'm getting there. <laughs> and there was that whole thing, you know, of just we – sometimes you get over the age of 80, and lots of people turn into, like, two-year-olds for the rest of their life because they just think it should all be about them. And mm. that's sort of a natural thing. The closer we get to death, we seem to think more and more about ourselves. Not that we ever sort of stop that, but mm-hmm. our self-centered – hearts just turn more that way um not everyone well i mean even in our posture right uh, as we grow older it gets more difficult to lift up our heads it gets more difficult not to be curved in physically um and and that has uh, i would say and i would argue that has an effect also on your kind of spiritual and for lack of a better way of saying it, uh, um, emotional outlook as well. Yeah, it's you're right. It's not just physical. It actually the fact that we don't lift our heads up and we get a little bit down a little bit and our physical weaknesses affects the whole thing of lifting up and seeing around, lifting up our eyes and seeing around us what God has provided for us. You know, mm-hmm. just as the lifting up of the heads for numbering in the uh, census of numbers is a reminder that, look, God was faithful. He warned them. And yet he also was faithful because those under the age of 20 are still there. They're growing up now. All the others are gone, but God kept his promise. Those bodies that littered the wilderness are out there, but those that he promised, he's going to bring them into the land. Yeah. And, so we kind of see in David here a lifting up of the head to find his um, confidence in his own strength or the strength of his own people instead of, as he was when he was a young man, finding his strength and confidence in the Lord. I'd say it's a good comparison, particularly if you look, because the great introduction is, of course, the confrontation with Goliath, and you compare that to these events— here mm-hmm. at the end, after he's given the last words, speaking by the Spirit, you see the torn man there, the one who is still not just the saint whose heart is perfect, but who is the one who is also the one who is a sinner and who is still wrestling and doing the struggle, even though the Lord has given him so much. I mean, much like that's what the Lord says to him in the days of uh, what happened with Bathsheba, right? He says, hey, look, I would have given you even more women, (laughs) which is always kind of bizarre to me, but... (laughs) I I have enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm not so good with one. Don't make me... (laughs) Oh, but that's another confession. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and I'm not your pastor, so let's stop there. <laughs> All right. 
okay, so David's heart is uh, struck. Uh, that's what the English Standard Version has uh, smitten uh, after he numbered the people. So it, this, are we to understand this is his conscience uh, uh, striking him to say, I've gone the wrong road then? I think that that's a safe way to do it. You know, yeah. The, the term heart you know, is not just, of course, in the Bible, it often is connected to the conscience, which is shaped by that spirit that David refers to in those last words. So, mm. and that we hear more about in terms of Paul's preaching and, well, even those activities of the other apostles, so that we're reminded that the pouring out of the Spirit on us in baptism is also designed to shape our hearts, but we need to listen to what's really going on in the process and be reminded, David needed to be reminded of Uriah really again and again, mm -hmm. just like each one of us do. And like even the Jews had to be reminded of that because you've got that Matthew insertion where it's Bathsheba's not named. It just says, you know, the wife of Uriah. So all of us need those reminders of the penitential life each and every day. It's you know, not just every so often that we have to hear it. <laughs> we have to sort of have it replayed to us again and again. Mm -hmm. And we need to be reminded and cry out, look, I pray, Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, it's, it's a term there that David actually prayed that Ahithophel would give foolish advice. I think it's good to connect it back to the foolishness there. David, of course, driven out of the city. He's got to have help from others. You've got Hushai involved. You've got Heathophel involved. Heathophel ends up giving the foolish advice. And it is, well, actually, it's advice that's really rejected, I should say, by Absalom, because the big fool there is Absalom. Mm -hmm. But all this is shaped by what goes on. Now, the term is used a lot by Solomon then in Ecclesiastes. We don't want to really go there today, but I mean, it is kind of interesting, this foolishness. And so mm -hmm. there, for example, Solomon reflects and says, you know, I have to worry about the foolishness of those who are going to be king after me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's going to happen? I'm just going to die and they get it, you know. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Let's see, that's sort of like Anyway, David gets up in the morning, and you have the prophet coming to him. Now, again, this is as a parallel back to Nathan the prophet coming at the time when David needs to be called to repentance. Here it's this Gad, who's the seer that we haven't really heard about at all, and yet suddenly he's here. Um, Do we have any idea who this uh, seer and Gad is? Can we... Um, connected to an actual name somewhere? Well, is he is a prophet named Gad. Oh, I misread um, that. Yeah. Okay. No, it's, there's really nothing else. It's one of these where the guy just shows up. It's much like you get uh, later in Kings, you get the the two prophets in uh, 1 Kings 13, or is that 14? 13, 14, whatever. Um, 
in which you get that episode, two guys unnamed, and yet, so there are these prophets and sons of the prophets who are there. Now, I like this too, because it takes us back to the beginning of 1 Samuel. And here's Gad, who is a David seer, a prophet. But remember how all this started in 1 Samuel. God heard the prayers of the people, gave to Hannah uh, a son, the Lord hears. And then, of course, this son is the one we hear that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Mm-hmm. Well, now in the days of David, notice there's prophets, Nathan, now Gad. You have the Lord making sure the word is continued and his people are nourished by that word. He hasn't abandoned them. He hasn't gone away from them. At times, the word of the Lord is rare or, well, the Isaiah language of the the rain falls down, you know, and then it's gone. And well, we see that in the history of the world, don't we? Where once the church was very active and where the word of the Lord was preached and many confessed and then it dries up. And uh, I know that sounds kind of negative, but it's sort of what we need to remember. The word of the Lord becomes rare at times. And we have to give thanks that it's here in our midst at this time. And we have this opportunity to hear this like David and to have our hearts shaped by that word of the Lord. Um, so he gets the three choices then. And um, he came to David, told him, shall seven years of famine um, come to you in your land? Now, back in, was it chapter 14, I think, or is it 12? There was a, They had been under in a famine for three years. So you get this famine sequence ties you back. Now, we find out God is angry with the people and they're wondering what should we do and it all goes to the fact that Saul killed um, the uh, what do I want to say the okay Gibeonites that was it yeah Saul kills the Gibeonites and so there needed to be vengeance carried out to punish Saul's descendants there have to be seven of his Male descendants put to death. Of course, one receives mercy. Who do you suppose that is? Well, doesn't Mephibosheth? Yes, Mephibosheth is spared. You get Mephibosheth earlier seated at the table, of course. And now Mephibosheth, because of the promise to Jonathan, the mercy is there. That's an enduring promise that David keeps, even as God faithfully keeps his promises. And so David, showing mercy, has spared Mephibosheth, and the other seven end up being put to death. And that turns that then God hears the prayers uh, for the land, and the famine ends, and you have uh, the narrative continues. Mm-hmm. So famine is there. They know the harshness of it. And then show you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you well story of David is the story of him you know, fleeing before Saul for quite a while, fleeing before Philistines, this constant flight. And then finally, you're, you're being reminded really of events from the whole First and Second Samuel narrative. Mm-hmm. And then three days plague in your land. Well, plague is always to force our minds back, of course, to um, the plague in Egypt and then God mm-hmm. promising the people if they're faithful, there will be no plague, right? 
But then comes the plagues in the wilderness because of their disobedience and the plagues that come upon them here. And um, so Gad asks for an answer. And for David, it's not that he wants any of them really, <laughs> but he he says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great. There's Psalm 18 that was quoted at length in, in chapter uh, 22. And even what you see in terms of the last words of David, then at the beginning of chapter 23, really coming forward, the Lord is the one who is the God of mercy. And it's better to fall into his hands or, or go back even to, you know, when Moses is there on the mountain and the Lord says he's going to put all the Israelites to death and start over. And he says, no, because you were a God of mercy and your promise was to these people. And mm -hmm. so the Lord is merciful when you appeal to his word. And um, this great merciful activity is what why he can put his hands, his himself into those hands. So you get the, all these wonderful Lutheran hymns. The will of God is always good. You mm -hmm. get the language of Paul in the epistles where he talks in terms of that will of God because it's better to fall into his hands and to recognize that ultimately he is the God of mercy. His mercies are great, but you don't want to fall into the hand of man <laughs> because man is not the, the one who is merciful. Um, yeah. So do you the, think that this is David choosing the plague, or, or is he letting God decide? Uh, I mean, I've heard both sides of this, um, and I, I'm not convinced one way or the other. The, 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 the side that says he's choosing the plague is, you, you know, to say, I, I want to fall into the hands of the Lord than the hands of men. Uh, having seven years of famine puts you at risk of falling into the hands of men. Being chased by your enemies is obviously falling in the hands of men, but uh, having a plague is only falling into the hands of God. I, I don't. I think it's more that he just commends the whole thing to the Lord. I don't think he's asking for a plague. Okay. I don't think he's. You know, I think it's just the emphasis of the text is about the mercy. That's really mm -hmm. what it's about. The Lord is the God of mercy. And whether he sends the famine or plague, none of those things are good. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so let it be the Lord's decision what will happen. Plus, even in the case of, say, um, the plague, knowing that God is merciful, you can reflect back of how he caused the plague to end. You have, for example, when Aaron steps in between the people and the plague, and you have the end of the plague there. And so reflecting back on how the mercy of God works, David is even hoping that the plague will stop if it comes. I shouldn't say that specifically. He's thinking whatever God says, the mercy of God can be appealed to, and you can have an end to the events, perhaps even sooner than God says. Because we know that the Lord relents at times in his mercy. So, now, I don't think he's re requesting for something specific. I think he's reflecting on who God is. The God who is merciful. Or New Testament language, God is love. And better to fall into his hands. Okay, so he's, even though the Lord is saying, you choose, David is saying, no, you choose. 
right. That'd be my kind of thing. Be who you are. Be merciful. Mm. Okay. And so then he sends the the pestilence. Now, why the pestilence? Uh, or, or why do you suppose the pestilence is the merciful uh, uh, action versus the 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 other options? That I I haven't figured out why. <laughs> other than that, okay. I I do like the fact that it involves the angel of the Lord. Okay. And the angel is there stretching out his hand. This is just a, a clearly a Christological connection here. I think mm. where you've got the Lord sends the plague from morning till the appointed time. Whatever it is, what what does that mean? Till the appointed time, does it mean it went on for three days or not? It's, it seems uncertain, but you do have seventy thousand men die. Um, now, put that in terms of seventy thousand. You get the seven times ten thousand, so you can do it. Sort of, there will be rest for the land after that. Um, rest even for the people. So the angel stretches out his hand over Jerusalem, and it's then that the Lord relents from the destruction. So the plague stops. Is it really the full three days? There's never a definition of that. Mm -hmm. And so you see it in terms of the mercy again. Instead of having just people dead everywhere, and after all, they numbered 1,300,000 men who were fighters, you don't have all those go down. You just have 70,000. Some would people, some might say, well, that was horrible. Why would the Lord kill 70,000 men? Although for those who die in the Lord, um, the will of God is always good. And who are we to define why God you know, would do that rather than to say to us all, repent, you don't know the day or the hour. I mean, we've just, we're still in the end of church here week here, so... You don't know the day or the hour, but the judgment comes. And uh, mm-hmm. so the Lord stops the angel of destruction. Now, think about that in terms of another story that's going to come up in Second Kings when the angel goes out against the mocking forces of the Assyrians and he kills how many? Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. 180,000. I mean, the dead bodies are everywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's nothing. The, the 70,000 compared to those who really mock him. And remember, it wasn't that the Israelites really deserved to be saved in that story. Um, I shouldn't say that the men of Judah deserved to be saved. Um, but it was the way the, they mocked the God of Israel, even speaking in Hebrew and speaking to make sure all the people heard them mock the God of Israel. And mm-hmm. then they wake up in the morning and everybody's dead. <laughs> <laughs> so the Lord is merciful to his people there in that story too, even though there's people dead everywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. So is there a distinction here going on in verses 15 and 16 that the that – uh, you said the appointed time. We're not exactly sure if that was the the whole three days, um, right? Uh, so, if we assume that it was the three days, does verse sixteen indicate that the angel of the Lord was going to go beyond that? 
I'd say it has to be like the third day then. Okay. And yeah, it does. There is something that it's either the third day or it's earlier than the third day. Yeah. And so, the fact that it's the angel of the Lord, I like it if it's the third day. Yeah. And I death would ceases. Um, <laughs> that would be really good because then you'd have this Christological third day event with you know sort of a death and resurrection moment. And yeah. the fact is, it does happen at the threshing floor, a place of judgment, of around the Jebusite. And of course, yeah. I like the fact that he's a, a Jebusite too, because he's not an Israelite. He's a Jebusite, the people of Jebus, who, of course, had been in Jerusalem, but David had overcome the Jebusites. But he's still yeah. out here. This Jebusite has his own threshing floor. And Second Chronicles, or First Chronicles, excuse me, gives you the added details that this place is going to be the place immediately when this event is all done. David plans for the building of the temple there. Right. Mm -hmm. I, and that the angel of the Lord is there at the place of the temple, and it's the third day, and death stops. It's just, mm -hmm. it's not an accident. I mean, this is why I always say the Bible is too much fun. Because it just all kind of fits together so perfectly. And yet, at the same time, we remind ourselves, did David see everything that was going to happen or anything like that? No. We, who as the writer to the Hebrews says, now know the fullness of these things, can look back and say, aha, look what happened and how God was speaking of his own desire to stop death, the death that is in the world because of men. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and then this wonderful then, when he sees the angel, he says, surely I've sinned, and I have done wickedly. Notice the eyes, and that was Nathan in the accusations against David, you know, really came forward against him hard. And um, David, David has to admit that he has sinned there and deserves to die, and is told mm -hmm. he won't die. Right. Here... He's confessing his sin. And then this wonderful thought, but these sheep. Now, of course, it's the same sheep as in all we like sheep have gone astray. But these sheep, what have they done? In other words, it's really my sin. Don't punish them for my sin. And so he wants to take the place, to stand in the place. And he be punished and the sheep be spared. Wonderful substitutionary atonement kind of language. You get this vicarious satisfaction, whatever we want to call it. It's there. And we see that this must be, and ultimately, Christ himself must be punished for our sins. Because we know from the beginning of the narrative, right, that Israel, all Israel, has you know angered God again and again. And yet here, David says, hey, I'm the king I'm going to bear this. The sheep, they've. what have they done? So this wonderful picture of the ultimate act of the true king, because you've had this king thing going on through First and Second Samuel. Now all the other kings are going to have too, but notice how much detail we have about this progression. The rejection of God's word in Samuel, longing for a king, then Saul and all the failures of Saul, and then this lengthy account of David, Every other one who follows gets compared to David, don't they? 
because David's heart, this was the heart. Is there anybody who has a heart like my servant David? This is really the question. So let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So I'll stand here. Let it be that you take your anger out on me. Even though he's already said that this one back in, um, what verse is that? Ah, 23 verse 5. In his last words, he says, My house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. That in fact, God has made his covenant with David. And so he cries out for that. And here, the father's house, me and my father's house, let the judgment be there. And so ultimately, when the king comes, and you have the king of the Jews right there on the cross, the sign, here's the one we've been waiting for. Here's the real David. Well, even the fact that this is my beloved son, and David means beloved. And Christ is identified as the real David who is there. He's the son of David, another title. All this pointing to the coming. And here's David standing in the last scene of you know, Second Samuel, being the one who is acting like the king needs to act. So he goes up, erects an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah, and he does, so David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Um, meanwhile, Araunah is looking at what's going on, and he does what happens in the days of, um, now I'm blank, in Genesis 15, where you get the account, or Genesis um, 12, sorry, where you get the account of... Um, Melchizedek? The, Melchizedek, thank you. <laughs> Being, getting older is bad. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about the fact that you're, you know, you don't look up, well... Once in a while, things just blank out on me anymore. Melchizedek, <laughs> of all people. Um, remember they that the kings uh, want to give him an offering, and he, mm-hmm. in fact, you have Abraham saying no, and you get that whole interaction. Um, here, David wants nothing to do with Arauna buying or giving it for free. He mm-hmm. wants to pay the price. The price has to be paid. I mean, that just has to be emphasized. Again and again, the price needs to be paid because you're talking about ultimately the redemption. You're talking about the sacrifice of Christ. You're talking about what needs to be all along. It has to be a price paid. And so Mm -hmm. offer up whatever seems good to him. He says, but nope. Instead, he says, nope, I will surely buy it from you for a price nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. There has to be a cost. So -hmm. David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And uh, you get the building of the altar, the offering of burnt offerings and peace offerings. Interestingly enough, of course, the fact that David is doing this activity, you know, turning him into not only king, but a priestly figure as well right at the end of this book. It's Mm -hmm. a nice little king and priest. And David has already said that the Lord, the spirit of the Lord speaks through him back at the last words of David. So you've got this nice sort of David standing as prophet, priest, and king as the 
curtain comes down. Now he's going to die in the next chapter. Yes. And that's all going to happen, but it's really kind of a nice conclusion to two books, first and second Samuel. And the Lord heeded prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. And boom, it's over just like that. So it's different ending because you get, like I said, details in the Chronicles, but Chronicles just has another goal in mind. This is two books standing nicely with the beginning birth narrative back at 1 Samuel, the song of Hannah, which is a reminder of the song of Mary. I mean, you can't help but see the parallels between the Magnificat and Hannah's song. And then the word of the Lord being rare, but here it is. The word came forth from Samuel. Then comes Saul and the tragedies of his life, the way he rejects the Lord and ends up in death. And then you have David, whose heart is the heart that again and again needs to be turned. The great mess of the Bathsheba event. But, oh, and even when he's confronted, of course, by um, Abigail, because then he was in anger going to go and kill the foolish husband. But Abigail called him out on that, and he is merciful there, too, isn't he? Then you have uh, Nabal ends up dying in Mm -hmm. 10 days, and uh, a nice judgment scene. So these things are nicely tied together, much better than ever any of us could put it together, because the Holy Spirit is involved in all this, and (laughs) is involved in the way that the scenes are put together, and you have mm-hmm. the flowing narrative, and you get these accounts of the men um, and the interesting locations of certain individuals in list and all the things that happen. So you begin with birth, you end with a nice substitutionary atonement kind of language, the deal of the price being paid. I think it I think it works. Mm-hmm. So I've got a couple of questions here. Um, so the, the the first is when the Lord says it is sufficient or it's enough, uh, stay your hand now. Um, is there any connection to um, the repeated phrase from the cross in order that the word might be fulfilled or something to that effect? Hmm. That that okay, the, these things have been filled up, or um, I hadn't thought about that. Let me just see. That verse. I mean, the word there in Hebrew is just rav for much or many, um, and palis in in Greek. So it's not like the it is finished, but you know, I, I'm just when the when the things are filled up or or have enough stuff, um, I, I I think of fulfillment. Uh, well, I like that thought actually. I'd have to think about it some more. Mm-hmm. Oddly, this is the thing about it. The other thing I always tell you, the more you ponder a text, the more there is there. Mm -hmm. Just it is something that you have to ruminate on everything. You just kind of chew it a little bit more and a bit more. And there's always, that's, you know, part of that Bible being fun stuff is there's always a little bit more there. And this one, I like what you just said. (laughs) I didn't have to think Uh, of it. Yeah. Um, And the second thing is that when... David gives 50 shekels and he says it must, it can't be, it can't cost me nothing. Uh, is there anything in David's life where he like t- 
he actually earns something like 50 shekels for the work that he did, or he's, he's already sold something that, that he had previously done in, in his own work, or are we to understand this is, comes from the taxes he's levied? Because uh, it seems like that wouldn't be something that cost him. Um, it, does that make sense? I would like to say that it's a personal. Yeah. His own personal. He takes it out of his personal funds because he's standing there. Now, I can't prove that but because the text doesn't tell me specifically, but it seems to me I like the fact that it's 50 because anytime you hear 50, you should always be thinking in terms of, uh, you know, the perfect Sabbath, the, the year of Jubilee, you should think mm-hmm. in terms of the 50, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and you should think in terms of the 50s, for example, when they send the 50 soldiers out after uh, Elisha and, or Elijah, excuse me, 50 soldiers come for Elijah and they all die. Then they send another 50 and they all die. But on the third time, the guy says, they send out the guy leading 50 and he says, don't kill me. be merciful and of course you have the coming of mercy in that case and so 50 is that intriguing number uh i'd put it in terms of i think it's his personal money i mean david is rich on his own yeah is is there any instance where it's stated he's earned this much for something or just were to take it that it's it's from his personal I just prefer to say personal. I have nothing yeah. to, you know, we can think in terms of what he brings out to the camp when you have the um, battle with um, Goliath. And mm. you can think, I mean, he puts, he takes the sword, of course, and that, but uh, no, I yeah. can't go back and say, here's the specific event about his own personal wealth or anything. Mm-hmm. I think it's more okay. about the overall picture of just saying, Look, if you're going to redeem something, there needs to be a payment. Mm-hmm. There needs to be that which is the purchase price. Yeah. Okay. And so this this demonstrates uh, what primarily this is how God acts always. I'd say yes. Mm-hmm. It's consistent with all the other accounts of the, and it's pointing us to the reality of Christ's birth. Is mm-hmm. being the real king, even though his people don't see him. And Christ's heart, of course, being the perfect heart, where Satan comes and tempts him, and he resists the temptation. And, of course, Satan goes away, but he keeps coming back again and again. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have even at the cross those who gather around him like the dogs, mocking him. Mm-hmm. And yet he faithfully commends himself into his Father's hands. And the merciful one again, I mean, who's merciful there? The father, who, of course, raises his son then, the importance of mm-hmm. death and resurrection. Yeah, on, on the uh, third day. <laughs> yes. How could yeah. I leave that out? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that's Well, I mean, either way, it's on the third day, right? I mean... Right, if it's, right. So um, so that's, that's still good. Uh, any final thoughts? I mean, any... any um, admonitions to like, or, or I don't want to say tips or tricks, but uh, 
on on reading this carefully, the Old Testament in light of the New. Um, just always be thinking about those connections. I get repetition of repetitious about this, so I'm sorry if I beat a beat things to to death at times. But the the whole thing of repentance is important in connection with this plague. Mm-hmm. But any time there is repentance, you also need to, to see the salvific work. You need to see the the atonement and what is coming. And sometimes God is clearer about that than others. I mean, mm-hmm. all the sacrifices always were pointing to that. And, you know, you were, of course, to give it the best of your fruits. I mean, even the Cain and Abel narrative is about the mm-hmm. sacrifice of of an animal and blood involved. And so again and again, the need for it to be your own, to give a personal cost, and yet ultimately, none of those will fulfill it. You need to have the one who steps in. And David yeah. is the greatest picture of that in the Old Testament. Yeah. I mean, he is, this is why, you know, this is why you get that beginning of Matthew where that he's the son of, you know, son of David, son of Abraham. That in fact, or turn that around, son of Abraham, son of David, <laughs> That's right. because you immediately by saying son of Abraham, son of David, you're thinking Isaac in the sacrifice, and then you're thinking David, and the end of David's life, and this particular sacrifice should stand out as being very important in terms of the king, and ultimately the greatest king, who is there in the end of all the gospels hanging from the cross with the sign above his head. Hey, the king is here. So, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of always walk away after talking with you about these things, or just hearing you talk about these things, say at a Gottesdienst conference or, or something to that effect is, uh, well, there is a place for um, a seriousness in dealing with the scriptures uh, you you always bring out, um, and I think in a very helpful way, um, uh, how to engage the scriptures in a playful manner, somewhere that we can go and um, kind of immerse ourselves in the way that you, we did when we were kids in the pool, splashing around and throwing things around to see what uh, to see what we hit or to see what you know what kind of game we can come up with. And I always kind of re- imagine that that when I what, when I get to a point and I'm looking at uh, and really struggling to like think things through, to just step back a little bit and play uh, and enjoy and delight in in what's being revealed there, and just to see what what comes out. I like your choice of terms, delight. It, you have to take delight in it. You know, if if we all become, and I hate hate to say things like this, academics about the scriptures. Mm. That is, that we just have all these serious rules. And mm. then we bind ourselves and fail to see sometimes what's right before our very eyes. And I think that's what's, I mean, think of how those who are really academic usually end up rejecting the scriptures, right? Because <laughs> they, they just can't deal with it. They Mm-hmm. Or just so busy having all these rules and this and that and everything. So, yes, the scriptures are extremely serious. But you have to realize that you're to delight in the Lord's word. Mm. And 
so I like your t use of the term delight. I think playing like children, you know, there is the sense that every time I taught in a classroom, younger children always could relax more about talking about the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Then you get in an adult group, you know how it is. The adults kind of want to not get it wrong and do this and do that. And whereas the children kind of, they're willing to just shoot out there, especially the younger they are. You can mm -hmm. ask them questions and they'll throw, and they won't worry if you have to tell them they're wrong. And sometimes they're right because they're thinking in the right way. And mm -hmm. we should always be helping the children think of the scriptures as something to delight in mm -hmm. and to delight in the Lord's word and shape their minds that way. But adults need to delight still too. And yeah. sometimes as pastors, we get way too serious about these things. I know it because I had the same problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I'm and, reminded every time I talk to you uh, of a poem by Billy Collins called The Introduction to Poetry. Uh, and and it, 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 he says, you know, I asked my students to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving an, at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is to tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. Uh, and, and, you know, that's so, it's so descriptive of what we do, not just to poetry, but to even the scriptures, that we take all the fun and delight out of it instead of just kind of like, I love that image of walking into the room and feeling for the light switch on the wall. Like, hey, let's just explore this. Um, and there is a childlike kind of exploration to that when you know when you're when you're young uh versus when you get old you just want to just tell me what it means just give me the basic uh um you know five word sentence to summarize instead of probing it yeah yeah i think it's so. and i like the poem <laughs> even though yeah, you know i'm i'm horrible about poetry yeah, yeah. i grew up in that generation where the only poetry we got was like from the Beatles and Led Zeppelin. So, I mean, <laughs> it's not very good. Uh, yeah. Or as Fritz calls them, that's a great hymn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, that's Introduction to Poetry by Billy Collins. And uh, uh, I would, if you're looking for a, a, an entry into poetry, He's very good. He's he's very humorous in that regard, um, uh, almost uh, comedian like in noticing things and talking about them. So, uh, so I would I would submit that as a great entry into beginning to read poetry. Maybe there's hope for an old man like me. <laughs> well, we hope <laughs> for all of our sakes, right? Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, Carl, for your time uh, and taking us through uh, looking at Second Samuel with new eyes. Uh, this has been a delight uh, to um, to go through this and and ponder 
and kind of, you know, walk around inside the room of Second Samuel and probe for a light switch. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Enjoyed it. All right. Take care. You too. <laughs>